Is nothing sacred? Well, we just might find out now as Mad Magazine senior editor emeritus Joe Rayola talks to me about comedy, religion, zen, and lots more, not least of all Mad itself. I'm Rod Mead Sperry of Lion's Roar, and this is After the Laundry, The Misery. So here we are, Joe. Now, you and I know each other. <laughs> We've known each other for a few years now because of, well, Zen Buddhism. But, and we'll get to that. But the main thing that's interesting here is that I knew who you were way before you knew who I was because I knew that you were a writer and more importantly, or maybe not more importantly, but an editor, a senior editor of Mad Magazine. And you were a senior editor of Mad Magazine for a number of years. You were at Mad for, what, 30-something years? Uh, 33 years at Mad. As I like to say, Jesus died at 33, and so did my career at Mad. <laughs> Which leads me for my, to my first question. So, how are you liking <laughs> retirement? <laughs> uh, you son of a bitch, you. You, you, you knew... You knew that that question would would piss me off. You know me well enough. Uh, actually, what's even worse now is, so, what are you doing with yourself? <laughs> oh, so let's get right to that. So what are you doing with yourself? Oh, you know, I'm floundering. I'm, I'm forlorn. Um, it's very strange. I have led a very peculiar life. For over three decades, my morning began sitting in a room with a bunch of comedy writers. Mm. That's how the day began. Uh, in utter silliness um, with the pressing question, who do we want to make fun of today? And then arguments about who or what we should make fun of. And then arguments about how we should make fun of the subject that we've chosen to make fun of. And by then it's time for lunch. That's not how my, my day begins anymore. So it's weird. I'm not qualified for anything after 33 years at MAD. I'm unemployable. That's basically what it is. I've learned in a very short time that 33 years as an editor of MAD, 20 years as a senior editor, has prepared me for absolutely nothing. I, it's... I don't think that I have anything to contribute to society any longer as an employee anywhere. Well, we'll get to whether or not you have anything to contribute to society in a non-employee kind of way. But for the people Maybe. who, you know, people may not really understand what's going on with MAD. If you go to the newsstands right now as you and I are talking, MAD number 550 is on newsstands, and it's got... Uh, you know, what's called in the magazine business, above the name of the magazine, an eyebrow. And the eyebrow says, landmark final issue. But in fact, it's not the final mm. issue. What exactly is going on with Mad Magazine? Well, first of all, I will point out that that, that copy you're speaking about above, above the title, which says landmark final issue, was not our copy. Uh, that was changed. When we left the magazine, I believe that copy uh, read 
our final issue in mm. New York. And that was changed by the new team. Uh, Matt has moved to California after, wow, it was in New York since 1952. So you, you do the math. Um, and uh, the next issue of Mad, which will be the, the first issue of Mad, uh, without any editors who knew Bill Gaines or were part of the uh, Bill Gaines era of Mad, um, will be Mad number one. That's pretty damn funny. Here's here's what I'm going to say about Mad Number One. The idea of Mad Number One. It 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 it's first Mad is part of DC Comics, DC Entertainment, and has been for a long time. DC Entertainment is part of Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers is part of Time Warner, and and all that stuff. As it is part of a comic book company, we all know that. The comic book companies, and I'm not talking about DC Entertainment per se. Any comic book company, it could be Marvel or one of the smaller ones, they have certain tricks. They have certain, they have a bag of tricks, and it, these are truly tested tricks that they can whip out when they want to reboot uh, a, a character or a storyline. And, and you know what? Now we're doing number one. This is the first issue of this thing. They'll do other things. For example, they'll change a character's costume. They'll, they may change the sexual orientation of the character. So you have gay flash. Or maybe they'll change the, um, they'll change the ethnicity of a character. So you have Asian Wonder Woman. They'll kill the character. So one of these tricks in the comic book world has been now applied to MAD. It is now MAD number one. And, of course, this is the kind of thing that MAD makes fun of, or has always made fun of. And I have mixed feelings about it. In a way, I'm, I'm glad that they're calling it MAD number one because it it's, sets a clear line of demarcation. It's MAD number one. It's got nothing to do with us. It's a new team. It's MAD number one. Fine. On the other hand, I think, well... The only way calling this Mad Number One makes any sense is if the next issue was called Number Four Hundred and Twelve. <laughs> right. It's reflective of of comic book mentality and comic book thinking, and of course, Mad started as a comic book. Mad was a comic book for the first twenty three issues, uh, but Mad itself is not has never been a comic book really since those early early days. And uh, something about it's weird. Something about it's weird too. I don't know if it'll work or not, but it's what it's what comic book companies do. So I had the thought maybe hey, what else if they you know whip out all their tricks, what could be next? Well, there has been a black Alfred e. Newman when we've morphed Alfred, say with President Obama, then Alfred was black. But I'm talking about maybe we'll just see a black Alfred e. Newman for the sake of a black Alfred E. Newman, changing the ethnicity and the, the gender. Maybe they'll kill Alfred because these are things that comic book companies do. Let me ask you, though. If they were to make a make Alfred E. Newman black, which he's never been except for, as you said, as Obama, I think there were a couple of uh, mad paperbacks that might have featured a black Alfred E. Newman. Would that kind of tampering with Alfred actually amount to tampering with a sacred cow? 
You know, that's just it. There's really no such thing as a, a sacred cow. These are just the things that I imagine that comic book thinking would lead to with this character. Right. Alfred, actually, in, in an edition of Mad in the 60s or 70s, I don't remember uh, which, it was special, but Alfred was actually de depicted as as an Arab, and I believe he was there was a, a black Alfred Newman that one time as well. I, I could be wrong about that because I'm actually no, I recall I'm not, this. Uh, you recall him. So I'm not a, I'm actually not an expert on mad history as as some real mad historians might might be. Uh, so yeah, I mean I don't I think it's fine for for the new team to you know uh, you know reinvent Alfred as as they want. I, I just uh, I hope that they don't limit themselves to what I call comic book thinking. It's important to understand what Alfred symbolizes and and who Alfred is. And I'm guessing that they that they do. I hope they they do. Who knows? What does Alfred symbolize, and and who is Alfred? Well, Alfred, of course, is the archetypal fool. The the, the fool is not to be confused with an asshole. <laughs> they're not the same thing. Some fools are assholes, but assholes aren't often fools. Yeah. Um, now, of course, I, I could be I could be wrong, and I could be both. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. Go on. <laughs> it's very possible. Think of the fool as depicted on the tarot, the uh, tarot cards. It's, it's the zero card, right? What's the most popular? 20th century deck is probably the Rider Waite deck. And think of how the fool is depicted on that card. The fool is dancing on the edge of a cliff, dangerously close to falling off and doesn't even realize it. And in that card, I believe, is a dog barking to warn the fool that, hey, careful, you idiot. You're, da <laughs> you're dancing on the edge of a cliff here. But the, the, the fool is divinely inspired you might say what does that dog represent the the, the fool's instinct or um, animal nature or whatever it is blake said the fool who persists in his folly shall become wise alfred is a fool but alfred also there's great wisdom in alfred as well and at the same time he's an idiot there's a, a lot of contradictions in uh the, the, the character of alfred in uh, it's a character, of course, that goes back a long time. No one's exactly sure where that character emerged from. But he's not hes not an asshole. And that's an important distinction here. There is a certain wisdom in, in Alfred. And, and Gaines himself, Bill, Bill Gaines, who was the uh, Mad's legendary publisher and created uh, Mad back with Harvey Kurtzman in 1952, Bill had a lot of Alfred in him, that he was uh, a man of tremendous contradictions. He was, uh, he was, you could say, uh, a fool, but there was a great wisdom about Bill um, as well, and that that permeated the the pages of of Mad. What's interesting, if you were on the Mad staff, you had the the honor, as it were, of being identified in the masthead as part of the usual gang of idiots. Yes, and of course, it wasn't just uh, if you were an editor at Mad, all the writers and artists were considered a part of the usual gang of idiots. And 
you know, Gaines, he was ahead of his time in so many ways. Um, he understood intuitively that this team of writers and, and artists that lived all over the country, if not around the world, would never see each other unless he brought them all together. And that's how the Mad Trips, the legendary Mad Trips, started back in the 60s. And these, these were trips to Europe and South America, right? Asia, right. Bill would bring the entire staff together. And by the way, these are all expenses paid trips. Bill would pay for everyone's airfare. Bill would pay for the hotels. He'd pay for some of the food. And that was a real bonding experience. I had the good fortune of going on the last three or four of those trips because I joined the Mad Staff in 80. Five, January 1985 when the trips were still going on but that's real forward thinking and it also speaks to Gaines's strangeness because Gaines was known for being cheap right? Everything about, uh, yes. And everything about MAD was cheap it said cheap on the cover, 25 cents cheap, even when the price kept going up it was cheap, Bill uh, refused to run the magazine in any way that was uh, consistent with modern publishing practices. For example, when you subscribe to Mad, he wouldn't allow you to send in a postcard with a bill me option. He'd require the subscriber to pay up front. When I started at Mad, the first year there, this will date me and um, and and the era, we had just gotten electronic typewriters. <laughs> and I was assigned with getting ribbons for the typewriters which I, I ordered. I ordered like you know 20 ribbons for like four or five typewriters that we had in the office. And a couple of weeks later, I had to order them again. And Gaines calls me into his office. He goes, what the hell are you ordering more typewriter ribbons for? And I said, well, because we, we've used them. We're running out. He says, what do you mean you've used them? He didn't realize that the typewriter cartridges, that these ribbons in the cartridges were not reusable. <laughs> he flipped out on me. He ordered me to find reusable ribbons for these electronic typewriters. I didn't even know if they were made because those are the only ribbons that Gaines would pay for. He wouldn't allow us to have uh, spring water in the in the in the office because he didn't want to pay for the spring water. He insisted on a water fountain. He used to walk around the office with something called Bill's Bills, okay? These are little pieces of paper. And if you made a 16-cent a, a phone call to your chiropractor in Scarsdale, you had to fill out this form, who you called, how long you were on the phone, and Bill would, would give you a monthly bill. This guy was cheap. He was really, really cheap. <laughs> This is where the the whole mad sensibilities came came out of that to some degree, and yet he was incredibly generous. Who had ever heard of a publisher bringing together the freelance staff and the editorial staff and springing for these lavish trips? It was unheard of. I'm telling you, when he threw a food party, it was a bacchanal of meat and and and, um, and uh, soups and it, it, it was non-stop the guy loved wine one of the legendary Gaines stories is that he did get a water cooler and filled it with wine I was attacked on the 
subway many, many years ago. As a subway was pulling out of a station and I was walking on a platform, someone leaned out of the car and punched me in the face. Oh. And uh, yeah, that's how I felt about it. And I, you know, I, I, I went down. I was more startled and frightened than anything else, but I was fine. It was happened during lunch. I made my way back to the office and Bill sent me to the doctor and paid for the doctor visit. He was exceedingly generous. And what was totally maddening about the guy is it, it, he didn't make any sense. How could a guy who is that generous be that cheap? But that was Bill. He seemed to just to know where to put his money. You know, he put his money in his people and he prized a certain kind of scrappiness. Well, he was stubborn. And you couldn't reason with him. Bill was like a twisted Mr. Spock. Okay, his, his logic was impeccable. Walked into his office one day. We had just put out a, a, a spoof of, a, of the cover of a wrestling magazine. And actually, I was the wrestler depicted on the cover. I was Harold the Killer Accountant. <laughs> and, and I was shown with my manager, who was played by bad editor at the time, Nick Meglin, who had a big cowboy hat on, and I had some rid ridiculous face on, and there were a bunch of, of satiric headlines. I don't remember what they were, but it looked really good. And when I happened to walk into Bill's office, and I used to go into Bill's office, whenever I wanted to take a break, I would just go into his office, and I'd sit in the chair, and I'd watch him work. I'd just sit there and watch him work. Sometimes I'd strike up a conversation with him. Sometimes he'd talk to me. More often than not, he'd tell me to shut the fuck up. On this day, when I come in, he's on the phone, and he is arguing with someone about this back cover that we did spoofing the wrestling magazine. And it becomes clear to me, as I'm listening, he's talking to the publisher of the wrestling magazine. I could hear the publisher of the wrestling magazine talking to Bill. And he says, and I quote, what do you think you're doing? And Gaines says, what do you think I'm doing? I'm making fun of your magazine. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I just love that response. And then, and then the guy starts telling him how this is costing him money, how he's got so many magazines out, X copies of magazines out, and, and if, if people confuse this, he has some logic he's putting forward that, that if people mix, mix this up and buy this instead, how, how, it's, how it's hurting him. And Gaines says, and, I, and I'm paraphrasing here, but, but Gaines comes back with the argument, our circulation is 10 times what yours is. If people see this and think it's your magazine and they don't buy it, I've lost money. <laughs> and, Good and logic. That, and, and that was Gaines. You couldn't talk him out of anything. This goes back to when he appeared before the, you know, the Senate subcommittee studying juvenile delinquency in the 50s, where the politicians are trying to convince Gaines that the cover of his horror comics are in really bad taste. And he said, no, actually, they're in good taste. And he made a case why they were in good good taste. That if they were in bad taste, they would have had a little bit more blood. Or they would have been a bit more, <laughs> it would have been a bit more graphic. But that was Bill. Even when he sold Mad, 
even when that was corporately controlled, you, and I say corporately controlled, corporately owned, because it was never corporately controlled while Bill was there. Right. Because no one knew what he was doing. No one knew how he was doing it. No one ever heard of such a thing. Could you imagine a magazine that, that was as wildly successful as MAD um, at its peak with two, hundred, uh, two and a half million readers that refused to take advertising? So that switch happened about when? Uh, I believe it was the late 90s. And, and when it happened, it was actually a decision that we made on the editorial side. A lot of people at the time thought, oh, MAD's selling out. MAD, MAD is going to take ads. First of all... Mad never had a lot of ads, even when we were accepting advertising, because not a lot of people really wanted to advertise in Mad for a number of reasons. <laughs> You're an editor at, at, at Lions Roar. And magazines are very targeted and very specific to niche markets now. As we joked in Mad, we, we once created a magazine called Teen Rabbi, the magazine for teen rabbis, <laughs> boating for horses, niche market. <laughs> That's never what Mad was. Mad, Mad was the that general that all general audience magazine with an odd demographic, lots of young readers, yeah, but then lots of older readers too. Its audience was too diverse, really, to be attractive to to advertisers because Buddhist magazine, you know, you can take an ad for in, incense and you're going to be reaching your market more difficult to advertise in MAD in that sense. But the advertising wasn't forced on us. That's the point I'm getting to here. We decided to accept advertising because um, the way it was framed with us by our corporate overlords at the time, we didn't have to do it, but that if we did, we'd be able to uh, shift MAD to a full-colored magazine. Right. And we thought, you know what? The trade-off's worth it. Bill is dead. Um, you know, as people say, he'd be turning in his grave. We'd always say, no, he wouldn't. He was actually cremated. Um, <laughs> and and where we think the advertising, we think this trade-off is worth it. But to get back to the point, Bill wasn't accepting advertising for all those years when, of course, Mad could have made a lot of money on, on advertising, but it would have also lost one of the things that made it so iconoclastic for all those years. Mm. No one on the corporate level said to Gaines, you have to take advertising. And if anyone did, he wouldn't, he would have said no. And you wouldn't have won the argument with Gaines. I never won an argument with him. The United States Senate never won an argument with him. That's a pretty good record. <laughs> <laughs> it really is a pretty good record. He was um, a big force. And he was fearless in terms of his outspokenness. And I can't remember him ever apologizing for anything that Mad ever did. He, maybe he did once or once or twice. I never remember him uh, feeling any way about Mad other than very, very proud of it. Mm. Well, now, Bill is dead, as you say. Yes, we say, we, as we were fond of saying, since Bill was since Bill's died, his attendance in the office has been somewhat spotty. <laughs> right. Yes. But now, I mean, Bill is Bill is dead, and and the magazine has moved to Burbank, California. Yeah. After being a New York institution since, as you said, 
when Kurtzman launched the magazine as a comic book in 90, 1952, yeah. um, you resisted that move. Tell me about that. Well, it wasn't just me who resisted uh, the move. The, the entire MAD editorial team resisted the move. You know, MAD always had an independent streak, as I said, even when it was corporately owned. And even after Bill, Bill died and MAD became part of DC comics and I think that they came to respect what we did and we liked them and, and they, they liked us. That said, we also kept a certain distance. We were not, I don't think we ever really felt fully part of DC Comics or DC ent Entertainment, even though we work with them because we saw ourselves as something different than anything that DC did or was doing or planning to do. We retained a certain independent streak. So when the time came for DC Entertainment to move west, uh, to be uh, closer to Warner Brothers and all that, it's like we didn't get together as a team and say, what do you want to do? And that was kind of the, one of the wonderful things about it. I think that it was widely thought that we made the decision together as a group, but we didn't. We didn't want to do that. We, we decided that we would let each one of us make the decision that was right for us on a personal level. And that's what we did. We, none of us wanted to go, both for personal reasons, but I think there was something also about going out to the West Coast. and We couldn't envision MAD. Uh, in the in the in the West Coast, or working for a West Coast man, so so we said no. Thank you very much. We appreciate the offer, but we're not going. And a day or two after that, we got the word back. Uh, okay, well you could stay. <laughs> so all of DC Entertainment moved to California, except Mad. I gotta say, it was pretty damn sweet. <laughs> that was, I mean, there, there were good people, and I had friends at DC, and I and I missed a, a bunch of those people. But we were going back to our roots. You know, we we were between the man office moved down the block to thirteen twenty five Avenue of the Americas. We were situated be, between Extra Extra and TMZ. Okay, and I used to say we we're situated between the paparazzi and the sycophants but I wasn't quite sure who the sycophants were and, and who the paparazzi was and we were separate from our corporate overlords and on the, in our own mad world just the way we were before we moved in with DC after Bill, Bill Gaines died that felt really good we were still of course uh, working with the folks at D DC on a corporate level, on a business level, and they were still good to us in a lot of ways, and they were, you know, that was all fine, but it was good to be separate from all that also, because the mad sensibilities aren't, and were never like comic book sensibilities. They just never were. And it gave us another couple of years before they decided, okay, now you're really, we're, we're really moving the magazine out west now. And guess what? We still didn't go. Well, there was no evil intent here. It's just a natural thing to absorb MAD and make MAD one of its brands or part of its team, which in fact MAD was and is. And we understood that we had to play that game, that we had to go along with that and make friends. And, and, and we did that well. John Ficarra was a master at it. As the executive editor of Mad, John was really knew how to play 
work with the edit the editorial staff well and his corporate overlords well but we all resisted on some fundamental level we resisted we wanted to retain a certain independence if on no other level a psychological and spiritual level because it is that independence that allowed mad to be mad right and it remains to be seen what mad will be now that in a sense that independence is no longer there hopefully mad will still be great i imagine that it will be more like a comic book not that there's anything wrong with that but i i don't think of the best of mad as being comic booky in fact if you look at mad's history even though harvey kurtzman is a legendary figure in the comic book world and the mad world the mad that we know and love actually didn't emerge from Kurtzman. It really emerged from Al Feldstein, who was the editor that um, I actually, uh, Al, Al retired after 28 years. I was hired when, when Al left. Myself and my pal, Charlie, uh, were hired after Al's legendary 28 years. And, and that's really the mad that revolutionized the culture. It's interesting what you say about um the new mad being more like a comic book I, I that obviously remains to be seen but the number one cover of their rebooted magazine has just debuted and has been shared on social media and in fact it the nameplate of the magazine is not the traditional sort of more ornate mad logo that we're used to seeing in the red type but a uh, version of the kurtzman logo um, that the comic de debuted with and very specifically most like number 14, the Mona Lisa issue. Well, you see, you're proving my point about some people know more about Matt's history than I do. I would not have known that it was from Mad number 14. But yes, this is, uh, it's a, uh, a throwback or uh, a variation of the Mad cover from the er early days. Again, not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> but my guess is, uh, given that the, the, the new editor, Bill, Bill Morrison, sensibilities, and given that, Mad is part of DC, and there won't be the kind of re editorial resistance that there was when we were there. Mad will naturally move in the direction of being more like a comic book. We should probably note that Morrison, he's known for a lot of things, but he's perhaps best known as being the editor and kind of the showrunner, as it were, of Matt Groening's Bongo Comics. Right. And, you know, listen, Bill's taken on a huge uh, challenge here. And in a way, the whole team over there, I feel bad for them in a way, because I can tell you this. I can get one thing I can guarantee you about that team. They are not having anywhere near as much fun as we did. <laughs> OK, well, that brings us it brings me back to the fact that we started this conversation with talking about and I'm sorry to bring it up again because I know it's a sensitive subject about how you're liking retirement. Ah, we didn't talk about that really. No, and we'll talk about that next time, but you've been dabbling, spending some time at a Zen monastery. I have, I know. I actually performed at a Zen monastery. I did my, I, yeah. did, I did a one man show called uh, uh, Still Ignorant After All These Years at the Zen Mountain Mo Monastery um, in Mount Tremper. And I believe, I don't know this for a fact, but I believe I may be only comedian who's ever performed at a Zen monastery. I've always wanted to perform at the Catskills. Were you met with stony silence? 
I, you know, I was not. A, a lot of the show was about religion, which is one of my favorite subjects. And when I, I, at one point I turned to Zen and I, I was talking about uh, religion and how religion is basically uh, male, how religion is basically patriarchal. And I, I mentioned Zen. I said, you know, even in even in the Zen tradition, you look at the liturgy here at the Zen Mountain m m Monastery when they go through the lineage of of male teachers. It's like ninety seven teachers. When they go to the women, it's they have like twelve of them, and it's on the last page of the liturgy book. It's like an afterthought. the The place burst out in applause. And I was, I was, you know, it's nice. And I've been booed. I've, I've, I've had experiences that haven't, haven't gone well on the stage over the years. Yeah, it's nice when they do go well. And, and that was one of maybe one of my favorite moments ever, uh, as a, as a performer, to hit that nerve there. That's very cool that you're performing at a Zen monastery, certainly, especially when, as you say, no one's ever done it. You're doing. <laughs> which I guess is a dubious achievement, I don't know. Really, really. But you're doing more than performing. You're taking your uh, retirement time and doing some other things related to this Zen monastery, and that's what we need to talk about. Okay. I think that's what we should talk about next. You insist. <laughs> as long as you don't expect any, any insight. I expect no insight, no depth, not a thing. Good, I'll do it then. We have a deal. Excellent. We'll talk next time. Thank you, Joe. In the meantime, for more from Joe, check out joereola.com or check out the last 33 years of MAD. And for more from me, Rodmeet Sperry, and my colleagues at the Leading Buddhist Magazine and website, visit lionsroar.com. Thanks for listening to After the Laundry, The Misery.